0: Paul, how are you doing today? Very well, thank you. Excellent, excellent. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today. I really quite appreciate it. I know it's a beautiful day today in London, um, and I I kicked you up inside for for most of it here. Um, Well, Paul, do you mind giving us a quick bio and some of the big ideas you're interested in?
1: Sure. I um, am a Londoner by birth. In fact, I was born in a suburb and lived in a suburb of London, for my first 18 years, which is very famous in the UK. It's called Wembley, and it's very famous for its football. Um, that's what you call soccer, um, a sport on which I have absolutely no interest. <laughs> uh, but I, I married a woman from Wimbledon who's ne- been ne- never been known to wield a tennis racket, but there you go. So, I mean, that is relevant in a way because Wembley is one of the areas of the country that has... Uh, experienced the most rapid demographic change, um, certainly in London, one of the earliest. Um, I studied in Oxford a degree called Politics, Philosophy and Economics, a notorious degree which equips you for knowing everything about nothing, or is it nothing about everything? I don't know. It's very broad. It's a great education, but it's... um, uh, One of my tutors said it really only equips you to be a journalist. Not that I've ever been a journalist, I went into banking, I went back to Oxford to do a master's in international relations, Um, and then I'd been a consultant for the last, a business consultant for the last nearly 30 years with my own business for the last 20, mostly in financial services. Always thought I'd do a PhD when I retired, And then I had one very quiet year in 2008 when the markets turned down and I thought, let's kick it off now. So I found the perfect um, supervisor, a chap called Eric Kaufman. I don't know if you've come across him. He's become a very good friend of mine. I wrote my thesis. Uh, He was actually in Harvard at the time, but then he came back um, 2009. We kicked it off Um, and that was published as an academic book, Demographic Engineering, Population Strategies and Ethnic. Uh, conflict, and it's essentially about how groups in conflict, ethnicities in conflict, deploy demographic strategies. It was an academic book, it got some good academic reviews, but it occurred to me at the time that nobody had written a really good book on, a general book on how demography had played out in the last Two hundred years, how it had affected history and been affected by history. It's obviously part of the web of the historical process. It's neither a first cause nor purely a sort of downstream effect. It, it's so that was that was how I came to write um, the Human Tide, which was published in the states as well as the UK and has had um, eight or nine translations. Um, interesting, which countries choose to translate it? Countries generally with with demographic issues like China. Japan, Korea, Italy, uh, Estonia, some some slightly uh, uh, small audience languages, but nevertheless, um, it's an interesting, eclectic collection of languages. Um, And then while I was writing that, it occurred to me, well, if history has been shaped by the big demographic processes, the births, the deaths, the population explosions, the population slumps, and the great movements, immigrations, emigrations, and so on, then it's shaping our world today, and it's also going to shape the future and that's how i came up with the idea of tomorrow's people um which has just been published in the uk doesn't have a us publisher yet but is going to be published again in china japan Korea and Italy. So uh, maybe the sign that you have I haven't found a US publisher is indicative of the fact that demography is not yet too bad in the US. So just in terms of biography, the other points I would make, I suppose, is I'm of German origin. Both my parents were German immigrants to this country, and I'm a dual national. I'm married. I've got three children. They're all in their 20s, and two of them are married. Um, and that's me.
0: Excellent. Excellent. Well, Paul, i um First, I, I want to jump off the outline and ask you a, a question. It's kind of a left-hand question, but uh, I think it's interesting. You know, How was it going back to get a PhD later in life? You know, In 2008, you know, we see most academics that go straight from you know, undergraduate to the PhD program, at least here in the States, maybe different in the UK. Uh, and do you think that gave you kind of a unique perspective on the world, having spent time in financial markets and seeing how the world kind of really works and, and, and having that grounding?
1: Well, for me, it worked very well. I had no interest in doing uh, going down the academic track when I left Oxford in 1986. I had uh, other interests um I did go back to do my masters when I was very early married and we had our first child and that was a wonderful holiday from reality it felt like it anyway and then I went back into the real world I had to earn a living Um, academia is not particularly well paid in the UK um and, and besides I felt very comfortable in the world of academia and wanted to push myself at that young age into a world of less comfort I suppose um one of the great things that going late in life I suppose there are two things I would say um the first is that you do have all those years of extra reading and um you know you have a breadth of perspective I mean it's kind of funny because Eric's a few years younger than me so few few academic advisors are uh, PhD advisors are younger but Eric's a few years younger and Eric's own academic advisor a chap called a, a theorist of nationalism called Anthony Smith was a very good friend of mine. So quite a lot older than me, but a very good friend. So that was sort of slightly odd. And Anthony's supervisor was Ernest Gelmer, a very famous. Um philosopher and anthropologist so i feel i've kind of linked to that chain but you you just by the you know starting your phd in your 40s you if if you're academically curious you've met a lot of interesting people like anthony i'd spent years sort of sitting and talking to him um you read a lot of interesting books and a lot's been going around in your head so i I think you bring a certain maturity to it and the other thing is that um, you have if you've been in the fine. I mean, London, City of London is not so different from Wall Street. It's perhaps got a slightly less, less fearsome reputation. But if you're used to working at that kind of pace, then your approach to academia is very different. And it's like, right, this term, I'm going to do this chapter and you write the chapter. You bounce it off your PhD supervisor. He gives you some comments. Eric and I meet for lunch. We have a schmooze. I rewrite it. Another another term, another chapter. So, I mean, it sounds a bit boastful, forgive me, but I did actually write my PhD thesis. I did the whole thing in three years part-time, so I was working at the same time. Rarely five days a week. I often had a day, like Friday, I would work on the work on the research and a write-up on the Sunday, but I got it done pretty quickly and pretty efficiently.
0: So it's something like, you know, if you bring, uh, you know, Wall Street or, you know, you, investment banking kind of like work ethic, to academia you can really crank through these things because you're like man we got the deadline we're gonna go we're gonna sit down we're focused we're gonna get this done yeah that
1: was my approach i didn't get lost in sort of soul searching right. what's the meaning of meaning and how do i get to write the next sentence
0: yeah we've got this much time we got to get it done I, I really like that
1: and then a kind of business-like approach to getting it published you know i only got it published because of, thought uh, you know I, I asked around and i yeah you know, used my connections and people I knew and and similarly then when I was writing the just sort of amending it and and creating it as a book it's very similar to PhD thesis but you you like you you reduce the methodology section and so on. Um that was the time I thought you know maybe there's a market for another kind of book. So you you kind of think in a in a slightly different way.
0: That makes sense. That makes sense. I I really like that. Um well back to demography. Uh, I find demography very interesting because it seems like one of the few Really solid predictors of the future we have. So if we look at you know total um, you know, the fertility rate over time, we can kind of get a sense of where things are going and, and what things are going to look like. Um, you know how robust is uh, demographic foregraf- forecasting? Is it fairly robust? Um, do we have a good idea of what, what's going to happen? I mean, I imagine we do, barring like big events like coronavirus or yeah. you know plagues, yeah. pandemics, wars. So. so, so-
1: so certain things are there. I mean, first of all, you've got to accept the the how or question how good the data is. Um, the more, oh, as I say, I think in maybe the last book, most recent book. Um, the more recent, the more developed country, the better the data. So um, the our, our guess of how many people were born and died in Denmark last year is going to be close to decimal points, right? Right. Um, what was the migration into Botswana in 1952? It's going to be a finger in the air. So you've got to be a little bit sceptical about data historically. Of course, you're talking about forecasts. But there still are parts of the world where it's not great. So people debate really big issues like just how low is the Chinese fertility rate, partly because it's a huge country. It's developed very well, but it's not um, not got sort of Danish levels of development and the communist parties had various um, uh, agendas, first of all, to show that it's, oh, there's a real problem, then to show that the one-child policy is working, then to not be too alarmist that it's working too well and so on. So you've got to take all these things with a little bit of pinch of salt. But I think the rich, re- so, so um, most of these things you can predict. So short of a disaster, like we know in 50 years how many native-born Italians there are going to be, right? More or less. Right. Because in a country like Italy, to the age of 50, the mortality rate very, very low. I mean, it could be a little lower. It could be a little higher. But most people under 50 are not going to die. Right. They've been born. Um Of course, they could move out so they could cease to be Italians. There could be immigrants moving in and they could be assimilated so they could become Italian. So it's not going to answer that sort of question. Um, And the other thing is, as you said, there are always shocks to the system. There could be a pandemic which puts Covid-19 into the shade and we could end up with, you know, half the cohort of Italians born last year dead at 20. So it's not absolutely cast iron, but it's a, you know, if you were going to say how big is the Italian economy going to be in 50 years time um, versus how big is the Italian population going to be in 50 years time, we have a much better idea because fertility and mortality um, are uh, better understood now. Of course, the other question is, where will they go? So where will Italian fertility be in 50 years' time? That's another question. And people do forecast that, um, and perhaps we'll come on to talk about that. I think in terms of the world today, the really, really big question is how fast is African fertility going to fall? So outside sub-Saharan Africa, Almost every country either has low fertility or rapidly declining fertility. And and in that part of the world, as things stand at the moment, our best guess is that's not going to go back up to replacement. How low, how fast it will fall and so on. Uh, But basically, we can see that coming almost everywhere. Even India is now moving to sub-replacement. But in sub-Saharan Africa, there's a very mixed picture. You've got South Africa, which has got a relatively low fertility rate already. And then you've got countries like Kenya and Ethiopia, where it's high, but coming down fairly rapidly. In Nigeria barely seems to be falling at all. So that's the big unknown. So we can, you know, with, providing the data's OK, we can say in 50 years time how many 50 year old Nigerians there'll be. But it's really difficult to know how many Nigerians are going to be born in 50 years time.
0: That makes sense. I want to talk about Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, you know, What's your sense of fertility? Do you think fertility is going to drop in Sub-Saharan Africa fairly quickly, or do you think it's going to continue to stay high?
1: Well, as I say, that is the great question. That is the great demographic question of the day. And there are various uh, books that have been written recently with, with very different views on that. Um, Youthquake by Edward Pace being one of the more recent. Uh, Empty Planet from a couple of years ago. Um, As part of writing Tomorrow's People, my intention had been to get on the road. So I haven't been to sub-Saharan Africa since I went camping in Mali in 1990. So I really felt I needed to go out and speak to people, use my eyes, but also go and see local demographers and get a sense of what's going on. I think the picture is very, very patchy and it will be patchy. I think there are gonna be countries where it comes down really slowly and there are going to be countries that continue to surprise us. Um, and you can kind of name those I mean, Uganda, for example, It was, it was they actually had a pro government, which is quite unusual. But that's changed. And now it's starting to come down fast. East Africa is generally coming down quicker than West Africa. Most of Southern Africa has already come down. I think it's really important that people realise, however, that first of all, these countries are way off replacement level, so they're way, way higher than replacement level. And it's a long time before any of them, or South, Southern Africa's perhaps there already, but a lot of them are not gonna get to replacement level for a long time. But the other thing is, and I think this is generally not understood, your population doesn't stop growing when you get to replacement level. It means long-term it will stop growing. Britain went sub-replacement in about 1972. So here we are 50 years later, and only in the next few years, are we gonna have more deaths than births? So to get migration, obviously you can always top up with migrants, that's a given, but it's taken us 50 years. And the reason is that in 1970, women started having fewer than two children or 2.1, but there were so many young women from the baby boom. And relative to the population pyramid, there were few old people, because they had been a smaller cohort dying. So even if the women were having fewer children, there were still more people being born with a sub-replacement fertility rate than there were people dying. So you continue to get... So Africa has got decades of organic, natural population growth in the works, even if tomorrow every African country went to a 2.1 fertility rate.
0: But like, it lags a lot. That um, that, that makes a lot of sense. What's your sense about why as countries develop, you know, fertility, it seems like this almost law of nature that it, it drops.
1: Um, again, there's a really interesting debate on this. And and you know, I think one of the reasons I wrote my books is there's loads of quite intricate debates about is the driver education? Is the driver urbanization? And actually there's a lot of minutia, which is interesting to academics. But I think you can not skirt over, but you can synthesize. I mean, the three things that do seem to drive lower fertility rates or have done historically are education, particularly for women, urbanization, and a rise in income levels. And you can see why each of these works in an urban environment, You can actually invest in a child. You're more likely to have access to education. That child's more likely to be able to benefit from that education. If you invest in that child, that child can bring in very significant returns. I mean, this is an economic argument, whereas the extra pair of hands in the village is always useful. So that's sort of the urbanisation route. In terms of education, I think we can all see. I mean, those of us who... um, have travelled in places where people are not educated and not able to take control of their fertility, whether they want more children or not. They don't really have the means to control it. With education comes the means to control your fertility, and very often for women, the opportunity to do other things. Um, And those two things are associated with a rise in income. Um, What I talk about in my most recent book, though, is what I call postmodern fertility, uh, postmodern demography. So, what I call pre modern is the world of Malthus. People breeding like rabbits, dying like flies. And that was the world generally. Of course, Malthus came on in his later works to look at actually how that varied and how fertility was controlled. And they had later marriages here and they involved themselves, they they, um, committed infanticide there and so on. But broadly, fertility rates were very, very high and life expectancy was very, very short almost everywhere. Then you get what I call modern demography, which is the transition we've just talked about to urbanisation and to uh, more education and to higher incomes. And over time, fertility, first of all, mortality comes down and populations boom and then fertility falls and a larger population starts to stabilise. Now, what I call postmodern fertility or postmodern demography is a world where everybody is aspiring to long life expectancy and generally life expectancy is long. I mean, places like India now are heading for a life expectancy of 70. You know, we are in a different world. And those will get up to 80, but the, the great gains in in um, life expectancy are being made in countries where it's shortest and everyone's getting up to those kind of levels of life expectancy. So shorter pandemic, that's not that interesting. What's really interesting is fertility and there, What's starting to happen is the economics, whereas in the modern period, economics and economic development drove that drop in fertility. What we're seeing now is fertility is driven more by values. So there are some really interesting cases of this. Compare fertility in Vermont and Montana, for example. Look at the fertility of Trump voters versus uh, people who, who voted Democrat. Um, and those aren't huge, but, you know, that's half a child or three quarters of a child. It's quite interesting. And that's not about income. That's about values. Uh, that's about beliefs. That's about lifestyles. Then you have the more extreme cases of, um, to some extent, Mormons, not so much now, but Amish. Um, Haredi Jews. Um, And then Israel is a very interesting exception because it's a very urban, very educated and very wealthy country. And in Israel, the fertility rate is three, which is the only OECD country with a above replacement fertility rate. And it's significantly above replacement. And actually, there aren't enough ultra-Orthodox Jews or Arabs in Israel to make that the case. If you actually look at secular people, they have large families. So, you know, again, you can get to a very interesting debate about why that is and what's driving it, but it's all about values. It's no longer about uh, where you are. So, what I'd say is 1970, tell me the urbanization, the income rate and the percentage of girls who complete high school, and I'll tell you the t- total fertility rate, roughly, broadly, that's gonna break down as we move into a postmodern era, where even quite poor countries like Thailand and, and Morocco are leapfrogging in their demography, even ahead of their economics, and getting to quite long life expectancy, quite low fertility rates, and of course, much better survival among children and, and low infant mortality. So in the late phase of modernity, for countries like Morocco and Thailand or, or Sri Lanka, um, people are racing even ahead of their economic progress. They're racing to lower fertility and longer life expectancy. And then in the postmodern world, it's going to be about religion and ideology and nationalism um, versus a, a more liberal worldview. And that is going to be what drives fertility rates.
0: That makes sense. Um, I, I, I'm curious about this. You know, this demographic explosion in sub-Saharan Africa, you know, there's a lot of talk about, you know, migration problems in Europe. Like, just recently, this wasn't a big story here at all, so I'll mention it for the listeners. Uh, but, you know, the Belarusian president brought a bunch of migrants over to the border with Poland. It was a big story in Europe, from what I understand. Um, it, it seemed like that, that problem's only going to get worse, the, the migrant crisis, as uh, the population explodes in sub-Saharan Africa and people go to seek more opportunity in developed countries in Europe. Um, Do you see this problem getting any better? Is it kind of like at what it looks like? It's just going to be a very large problem that Europe's going to have to deal with?
1: Well, I mean, first of all, I think you have to qualify the word problem. So there are people in Western Europe who think it's a wonderful thing, and the more immigrants we have, the better. And there are people who don't believe that. Um, If you think that mass migration is not a great thing and that very rapid demographic and ethnic change in Western Europe is not a great thing, then it is a problem. But what is driving it? Well, you've got to see both sides of the equation. So on the one hand, you have this very high fertility rate in Africa. That's not new, by the way. What's new is the survival rates. What's new is go back 50, 100 years, a third of kids were dying before they got to the age of one most kids never got to the age of adolescence and and uh, having their own children so you keep those high fertility rates but the mortality rate goes down you have a population explosion so that's the key kind of demographic trend because they have they may not have great lives and they may not have great incomes but they have clear a bit of cleaner water a little bit of medicine you know quite it, it's a kind of 80 20 thing it's a curve gotcha. whereby when you start to get some of these things the impact on infant mortality Is very, very, and life expectancy is very, very strong. So that, and then the incremental gains for countries like the US and the UK are much smaller in terms of life expectancy. So we've got these booming populations because of falling infant mortality and general extension of life expectancy. We have The problem of many African countries in absorbing those people into their workforces, it's not universal and some countries are more successful than others. And I think there will be stars in Africa and there will be basket cases. And we can already see, you know, already today you could categorise countries by their successes and failures, but certain countries are going to struggle economically and also struggle to get that fertility rate under control. Um, Some countries will go through what's known as the demographic dividend, where you start to get the fertility rate down, and then you have a big cohort of people in their late teens and early 20s entering the workforce, not necessarily burdened with huge families. The fact that they're not having big families, it's itself a a suggestion that they're taking more control of their fertility, that they're better educated. and And very often that's the time you have a great economic boom I mean, Indonesia is a good guy. I've done some work in Indonesia in the last few years. That's a good case where you, you started to get fertility rates down significantly 20 or so years ago, 20, 30 years ago. And you can see the effects of lots of young people in the workplace um, and, and and are able to move into a, a global market. So some countries will succeed and some countries won't in Africa. Then in terms of Europe, we have to think of the huge demand we're going to have for labor because we... As I said, we've had 50 years of sub-replacement fertility in the UK, and we've had a huge amount of immigration. When I started working in the 1980s, there were roughly two people in their early 20s for every person in their early 60s. Wow. So of course, people can people can start work a bit later or a bit earlier and retire earlier or later, but all other things being equal, we had two entrants for every Exeter. Now the two are roughly balanced. And that balance is going to get worse and worse. So we're going to have a big demand for labour. Question, do we try and get our fertility rate up? Do we try and get immigration? If we get immigration, can we control that immigration anyway? Where do we want it to come from? Can we get it from countries where people are sufficiently educated that they start making a contribution on day one? what how how determined are we to control our borders and then there's a technological question which kind of a, a beyond my pay grade as it were but a very interesting one where demography meets technology and the rise of the robots is are the robots ready before the people run out if you like so you know i read all these lovely things about robots but when i have a, 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 an electrical problem or a plumbing problem <laughs> or my lawn needs cutting. Well, I cut my own lawn, all right, I can't do my own plumbing. But, you know, it's lovely to hear about all these fantastic innovations, but is there someone who's gonna fix my dripping tap? Um, or Is there a robot who can do it or do I need a person out them? Or if you've got a parent in an old age home, is there really a robot who's gonna take that person to the toilet, etc.? So if I look around the shortages of labour at the moment, we have got shortages of labour in the UK, I don't see tomorrow these problems going to be fixed by technology. Uh, and, you know, maybe someone will, for example, if we got self-driving cars, that would release a huge amount of labour, a lot of people driving taxis and minicabs or tanker drive and so on. But I, you know, that's the most obvious and famous case of right. where labour is going to be substituted. But I don't know if that's going to be feasible in five years or in 30 years. So, um for for today and for the force and that's that's something as i say which is we all know is going to be replaceable someone who can really do the weeding in my garden or really cut my lawn i mean i've heard about you know technological solutions to lawn cutting but i've never seen one and so i've also got a house in um a relatively remote corner of france and there they don't have huge depopulation but again if you want a plumber or an electrician you struggle. Now, if those people have been having three or four children, 30, 20, 30, 40 years ago, and France is far from the worst uh, fertility rate in Europe, by the way, then um, those people would be there. They're not there.
0: Definitely, definitely. And, and just, uh, you know, I, I work in tech, and um, I think it's a ways off. You know, we, we talked to Facebook uh, automation robotics researcher a couple of months ago, and he's like, it's much farther off than you think, so.
1: Yeah, I might have to be waiting with a dripping tap for a long time if I'm waiting for a robot. That's right, I right. might have to wait a while. And the weeds are going to get completely out of control, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly.
0: Um, I, I'm curious, we've seen a lot of uh, countries try to increase their, their fertility rate, uh, you know, most notably uh, Hungary's, the, the big case we hear about in Europe all the time, Orban trying to increase the fertility rate. Is there a sense that any of these interventions work? Is there are there things we can do, like policy interventions, we can try that you think will actually increase the fertility rate?
1: Um, government's been very successful at reducing fertility rates, but I always <laughs> say they're working with the direction of history. Gotcha. So, you know, if your population is getting more urban and more educated and richer, then if you help popularize and make available contraceptions, it will bring the fertility rate down. And whether the government action did it or the general process of history. So that's clear, we know. And at the most draconian, China had a one-child policy, which, by the way, I think was completely unnecessary, because uh, fertility was already falling very fast in China in the 70s, and other countries in East Asia saw big falls in fertility without that kind of coercion. So that's kind of on the way down. Now, on the way up, um, the jury is out a bit, um, but generally... I think we can say a number of things. One is, at best, these things are only modestly successful. And secondly, um, that they are... Going to cost quite a lot of money to have a big effect. So there's a classic case in Hungary where the Hungarian government has given subsidies for third children, and the fertility rate did go up. But it seemed mostly to be first and second children who are being born, not third children. So there's always this kind of question about causality. In Russia, the fertility rate did rise, but it sunk back again. Now there's something. There's another technicality. I don't want to bore you, but I'll sort of briefly, briefly. It's called the tempo effect. Which is that when women have children, when we're going through a period when women are delaying their childbearing, fertility looks depressed. And then when they cease delaying it, it bounces back a bit. What you really, what's really interesting is to compare the completed fertility of cohorts. So let's look at the women born in 1940 versus the women born in 1960. And that's a done deal, right? Right. I've got a friend who had a babe, her fourth baby. in her early 50s but that's wow. very very unusual so we can re- we can we can even say women born in the 7 in 1970 compared to so completed fertility. but that's very backward looking the way fertility rates are calculated year by year is just to look at the number of kids born the number of women who are fertile and say okay if that many women had that many children in a given year then over a fertile lifestyle a lifetime, that's what the fertility rate would be. And so when women are delaying their childbearing, that looks a bit low, but then they catch up later and the thing bounces up a little bit. So it's also difficult with Hungary and Russia, which are the most famous cases of pro-natal policies, to be sure whether there's been a little bit of that going on or there's actually a result of policy. But what is absolutely clear is that where there has been an attempt to do this, even where there's been some success, we've got nowhere near replacement level. So maybe Russia went up to 1.7 and it's back down at 1.5. I don't think Hungary even got anywhere near there. So the policies that have been tried so far have not succeeded, and I don't think there's a magic bullet. Um, and I very strongly believe that it's going to be about values. Um, and what I see among... Um, I think you call them Generation Z in in America or Generation Z. So I've got three kids in their 20s, but the youngest is 23. So what I see among his friends, in terms of their social attitudes, I don't think that correlates with large family size. I don't think it correlates with what we would have considered a traditional lifestyle, which we associate with higher fertility. So I, But I think in some communities, they do have those values. Now, those communities are very small. Um, but it's like the lake that the you know the puddle that doubles every hour or something. You don't notice it until quite late. It's going to be a long time at a national level between before Haredi Jews in America are a huge number. If, if you're sitting in parts of New York, Brooklyn, Williamsburg, Kiryas Yale or wherever, um, you're going to notice it. But if you're nationally, it's barely showing up in the numbers. But if they keep so certain groups with certain values keep, number one, keep those values and retain high fertility, which is no by no means certain, and number two, of course, are able to retain within the flock the vast majority of children born, then that's what's going to turbocharge fertility rates. I think governments can do their best, but I think governments would probably do best thinking carefully about values and how they can affect values, rather than thinking about let's throw a load of money at this.
0: That's that's really that's really an interesting observation um, because they're definitely better at throwing money at things than, than changing values. It seems. Um, what what do you think are those values? Is it is it, you know, these quote unquote family values? You know, conservative politicians love to talk about in the US. Is it, you know, encouraging people just to settle down, you know, get married, things like that? What's your sense of that?
1: Well, it was interesting. I, I was on a TV show um, earlier. That was last week. And there was a woman on it, a young woman. and and we were talking about this very subject and she said, well, at the moment, there's no incentive to have children. And I thought, I mean, I didn't want to argue with her. until we talked about incentives. But <laughs> I thought if we had needed government incentives to have children, <laughs> we would not be here, right? When I think of the circumstances <laughs> under which my parents were born yeah. and my grandparents were born, and even though when I was born, you know, the shadow of uh, nuclear war and and the Cuban Missile Crisis was not very bar- far behind us, course, everyone was massively poorer than they are now. So, um, That's why I do think it is about about values and priorities. And I'm not trying to preach, I'm just trying to explain to people what the consequences are. So where we are today, um, those values are, you know, the values that produce high fertility rates are what you could criticize as patriarchal and old fashioned. However, there's two nuances. Number one, The worst fertility rates are in countries where women are given an education and they're not encouraged to enter the workforce and combine that with with parenthood. And actually, you found that countries are quite progressive in helping women into the workforce um, and combining childbearing with, um, with careers like the Scandinavian countries and to an extent the UK and France have for a long time had higher fertility rates than more traditional countries like Italy and Greece, where, yes, the girl goes to a university, but maybe she gets discrimination in the work for what work, workplace or Japan's another case. But she's certainly not encouraged to combine motherhood with um, with a career. So, I, I, you know, there's that nuance. And I think from that nuance is the second point I wanted to make, which is, if people want to reproduce the kind of liberal societies that most of us quite like living in, um, we are going to have to find a way to talk about these things, and to do so, and to and to create a a sort of ideological space which is both liberal and pro-child. Now, clearly, that's going to have a lot to do with men stepping up to the plate, which, you know, I did my very fair share of nappy changing. I may well have changed more nappies than my wife did. I don't know, we weren't counting. But, um, you know, often fertility rates per woman, and that's because it's very easy to associate a child with a woman, and therefore we start talking about women as if it's all their job, which it absolutely isn't. Um, uh, So I think think we've got to kind of create a pro-natal liberalism, uh, if we don't want all the, all the pronatalism to exist in fairly patriarchal, uh, religious and closed communities.
0: Well, and you bring up a really good point there, which is, uh, you know, demographics, you know, the fertility right now is the, the politics of the future. And that, you know, if we think of democracies as essentially judging, you know, weighing the number of people that have certain opinions, if p- people with certain opinions are reproducing more, And they have some genetic predisposition, even if it's slight to a certain political belief or whatever. um, You know, they will win out in the end. Is that a is that a wild assumption? Do you think that's correct?
1: Well, I mean, the most famous book on this subject is by my friend Eric Kaufman, which you may know, which is Shall the Religious Inherit the Earth, um, which he wrote back about 10 years ago. And I mean, Eric's been a huge influence on me. Um, the other thing that Eric's pointed out to me, which I wasn't aware of, is that there seems to be, and I I think it's quite early, I don't think this is absolutely established, but there seems to be a pronatal gene, or a a a, a genetic tendency to be pronatal, to like children. Now, the reason that's You know, you'd say, well, that would have come to the fore historically. But of course, people couldn't control this stuff historically. So it was kind of irrelevant, more or less irrelevant historically. And so we didn't select people on that basis. Um, Now that we have choice, um, we haven't had that many generations where we've had choice. Now that we have choice, it could be that what we're going to see is the people with the antenatal genes, breeding themselves out of history effectively, and people who are pronatal, having larger families, and obviously those genes will continue, and then eventually you could end up with a much more pronatal uh, community. Now, what I have no idea about is whether there's an association of those genes With what we're told is, and again, this is a little bit beyond my area of expertise, um, you know, we're told that there are genetic dispositions which drive one to particular political perspectives, conservative or liberal in the American sense. So you kind of suspect that the pronatal gene might go along with a bundle of conservative attitudes. Um, because places like Montana have bigger, have higher fertility rates than Vermont, and Trump voters um, voted have have larger families than um, Hillary Clinton or, or Biden support. So you could see that a tendency in that direction. Um, I do I do think we need to be careful, though. You know, this term demography is destiny. It sort of suits my book, as it were. But I don't want to overclaim for demography. And the thing I always say about how important it, I think it really is but it can't possibly be the only thing. So imagine someone gave me a total description of the demography of the world in 1920, right? Right. Therefore, you predict Hitler, World War II, the Holocaust. the. I mean, it's nonsense, obviously, isn't it? Right. So if perfect demographic knowledge at time T does not allow you to predict the world at Time t plus tell you certainly tell you interesting things about what the world will be like. Like in 1920, you might have said, "My goodness, fertility rates in Germany are really falling, and they haven't fallen yet in Russia." The manpower difference is going to be really big. So if these countries end up in a war in 20 years' time, the Germans are going to complain that the Russians keep coming and coming. And coming. So there are certainly things you can um, predict. Um, and looking back, of course, you can see what the historical links are to what's happened demographically. But overclaiming and thinking demography is the only factor um, is shown up as as ridiculous, as I say, by, by by this point I'm making that at time t I have perfect demographic knowledge. What can I predict at t plus one? Something, but very far from everything.
0: Absolutely, so it's an important thing, but it's not the only thing. And that's a that's a good thing to keep in mind. Yeah, absolutely. So. Paul, I'm I'm curious. What's next for you? You know, you've just got this new book that was released. Um, I want to plug the book, uh, but but you know, what do you want to look into next with demography, or is it something else?
1: Well, I've got another three books on on, on in mind. Nice. Although um, I haven't got publishers for them, and they're not written. But I like to think I'll have something to do in my dotage. <laughs> so um, I would like to write a book, which is like a summary of the Human Tide and Tomorrow's People, but a purely British book. So it says, okay, where was Britain's demography in 1920? Say, go for a hundred years, look at the life of our queen who's now in her mid nineties and say, how did that change over the years? Tell that story. So that would be like the human tide bit, but in much more detail about the UK. And then say, all right, so how is this shaping the UK that we now experience in terms of its aging, in terms of what we expect the state to do for support of, um, um, you know, for pensions and healthcare? How is it affecting the macro economy? Because I I talk about gray capital and gray labor. So we've got old workers. And if most of the money is helped by people who want very safe investments, how does that drive the economy and force the government to step in and, and uh, Uh, Sort of take on a a sort of perpetual Keynesian roles. They're also plus the multiracialism of the UK, the massive change in ethnic demography, the growth of minorities. How is that all? So what's the story, past and then how is that all playing out? So that's one idea I've got, Um, and I think there's a book to be written like that for the United States, but I would leave that to a a, you know I just don't have the the hands-on experience. You can write a big book about the world because no one lives everywhere. And you can write about your own country. Um, but I would I would hesitate to do that about the US. And if I did it about the US, I think I'd have to, you know, move over and, and live somewhere in America for some time. So that's one idea. Another idea I've got is is um I like this term. I've used it here and there, the infertile crescent. <laughs> so um, you can walk from Singapore to Spain and only walk on countries where the fertility rate is replacement or sub-replacement. And that's all moving in that direction. So I think a book that just focuses on this question of where is fertility low? Is that the future of humanity? Is everyone gonna get there eventually? Why is it happening and what are the consequences? So really getting to that. Because le- as I said, I think the mortality questions ceasing to be that interesting. Everyone's getting to Denmark, as I say in the book, you know, in the latest book. In dem- demographically, everyone's getting to Denmark for, in terms of life expectancy. And the biggest gains have been made in, in the, the worst countries. So we're all going to live to 70 or 80, and then it will incrementally move beyond that. So fertility is where the story is at and really understanding how universal it's going to be, and who's bucking the trend and why this issue of values. I'd like to get into that a little more in detail. And then I've got a sort of slightly maverick idea up my sleeve, which is a book purely about the um, demography of the Israel-Arab conflict, for which I've got a very good title so far, um, but I'm not sure everyone will get it, which is um, Genesis Exodus and Numbers: The Struggle (laughs) for Demographic Mastery in the Holy Land.
0: That's very good.
1: Uh, But a good title doesn't necessarily make a good book. So I mean, that's a particular interest of mine, and I would like to go and research that and spend some time on it. Um, But whether I'll, uh, whether I'll ever get round to it, I don't know. So those are three ideas I've got at the moment, and I think you should always have. The idea of the next three books by the time i've written them if i'm still alive there might be another three up my sleeve
0: i love that ball well um I've, I've only got one more big question for you before i let you go this morning um i am curious it seems to me like on long enough time scales we will bounce out of this you know low fertility thing right because w- there will be some group maybe it's the religious people made somebody else that you know does have some innate like propensity to have more children that will start to become more of the population, and it just bounces. It, am I right to assume that, or you know, is it like some other fact about you know economics or the, the shape of the world now that will keep us from doing that?
1: Well, that is the big question. I think um, there are two views on that, and you know, we there's a kind of Francis Fukuyama view of history, which you know I've got a, a lot of time for Francis Fukuyama, but, but he's a very interesting thinker. But his view that we were all going to become like um, I don't know, like Denmark or like right. Vermont, or yeah, you know, we're all going to be liberal, we're all going to be Western, um, is yeah, you know, it, it had its day in the '90s, didn't it? And then we got some nasty surprises with with nine um, eleven and with all the, the uh, problems that have kicked off in the Middle East, and now. Um, Russia and Ukraine. It's not the world that we predicted. Um, And in many ways, that's extremely disappointing. I mean, it's very, very disappointing. I'm very disappointed that um, Russia is not what we consider a normal Western country. In other words, that it hasn't got democracy, it hasn't got liberalism, whatever that means in the specific context. So, you know, Japan is a liberal democracy, but it's not a carbon copy of Denmark or America. So, How you know the idea is can a culture, can a civilization incorporate these ideas, remain true to itself, and yet fit into the kind of global order and norms that most of us would like to see? So, we've been a bit disappointed on that score. So, bringing it back to demography, it could be that everyone is heading for this i I, i'm pretty sure short of a disaster we will all get get to long life expectancy and there are some wobbles there you know there's the deaths of despair in the us and how far is it going to go so let's assume we're not going to move to people living for 500 years and magic cures and reversing aging that could change a lot but let's just keep in the science and not the The sort of science fiction. And not that I dismiss the science fiction, but I just don't know. But let's assume that we could imagine, you know, there could be parts of the world where we get a life expectancy in the mid 80s and it retreats a bit and then it goes forward a bit. We've had a few wobbles in the UK in terms of life expectancy, and you've had them in the US. You know, as you get towards the frontier, it's not all going to be plain sailing, but most of the world is going to move towards that kind of 80 ish life expectancy plus. So, um, are we? So I think that's. In the bag. So then the question, which is your question, is are we going to move towards everybody being sub replacement fertility or not? Now, one way you could look at this is to say it always surprises us. Who ends up with low fertility? In my book, The Human Tide, I quote the French saying in the late 19th century, the German woman is perennially fertile, the Teuton produces child after child, and they (laughs) press down on us in 1870 and all that. So we know now that germans have had very low fertility rates for a long time and you can find similar things in germany about 15 years later saying oh the slavic woman with her endless fertility (laughs) um and we know that russia has a very low and actually every slavic country you know from russia to bulgaria to poland they all and the south uh south Slavs that former yugoslavia they've all got really really low fertility so that was a fantasy Who would have guessed? I mean, I'm old enough to remember when Chinese families were quite large. Italian Catholic families were large, you know, the Italian mama with her. That's all history. And so there's that point of view that says everyone gets there eventually. India now, a country where, you know, they were having five or six kids not that long ago, has got down to replacement level and in urban areas, it's very, very low. So if even even Germany from the perspective of right. 19th century France or Russia or um, China or India is going through this, then um, where, where isn't going to go through this? And why would sub-Saharan Africa be any different? Right. Now, there's a really interesting theory about why sub sahara might be different. And that is that in most countries... There has been historically a shortage of land and they've lived in Malthusian conditions. So in China, they were constantly pushing up against this. And as late as the 20s, there was a lot of infanticide in China. And although they had big families in China, there was a sort of antenatal culture lurking there because they were always pushing up against the boundaries of what could be produced. And eventually you get to very low fertility, whether enforced by the government or not. What's unusual about Africa is its sheer size, its underpopulation, partly perhaps because of the slave trade, the idea that for centuries, Arabs were skimming um, millions of Africans and then eventually Europeans on a mass scale taking Africa. So there was a shortage of people and that there could be a genuinely pronatal culture in Africa um, that maybe doesn't disappear, um, maybe takes longer to go, you know, and, and, and African women could be the last repositories of pronatalism and a sort of lesson to the rest of us in not giving up on humanity. So, and again, it sounds like I'm preaching. I don't think we should have six, but I mean, three has suited me very well, and three is a kind of two or three is a very sensible number that allows a country yeah. to grow gradually. Um, we haven't of course talked about the environmental issues that's another another story so So, there is a view that we're all going to get to Denmark, and there's another view that Fukiyama was wrong on politics, and that uh, there are going to be islands of surprises. Africa may, there may be islands within Africa, areas with Africa that retain high fertility, and in the developed world we're seeing these, today, very small communities, Haredi Jews, Amish, to some extent Mormons, still quite small. Um, What could that be a harbinger of something for the future? what do I believe? I I tend to be a sort of anti fukuyamaist on this. I think we will get a surprise and the surprises won't be where we expect them. I suppose they right. wouldn't be surprises if we did expect them. But I think we'll never quite know where the next little pronatal island is going to crop up. Um, and against a background of generally low fertility, these islands are going to be even more powerful and effective and numerically important than they would otherwise have
0: been. That's great. That's great. Paul, thank you so much for taking the time today. Where can people find the book? Where should we send them to pick up a copy? So The Human Tide
1: is on Amazon, both in um, the UK and the US. As I said, I don't have a publisher yet for tomorrow's people. It is in the US. So it's on Amazon.co.uk. So if you want to buy it in the States, I believe you can access it there.
0: Excellent. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate you taking the time to come on.
1: Thanks for your time. Lovely to speak to you
0: thanks for listening we'll be back next week with a new episode of narratives